welcome to the retirement board meeting. The meeting is being held in a hybrid format with a meeting occurring in person and live on sfgov.tv. Before we begin, I would like to remind all individuals <clears throat> present and attending the meeting in person today that all health and safety protocols and building rules must be adhered to at all times. Failure to adhere to these rules and requirements may result in your removal from this room. We appreciate your cooperation with these important rules and requirements in the interest of everyone's health and safety. Please also note that hand sanitizer stations are available throughout the building at each elevator and masks are available upon request at the front desk. Madam Secretary, please call the roll. Thank you, Commissioner Bridges. Present. Thank you, Commissioner Driscoll. Present. Commissioner Gandhi. Present. Commissioner Halfon. Present. Commissioner Thomas. Present. And Commissioner Sansbury is absent. We have a quorum. Thank you. Madam Secretary, you want to call um, the next item? Yes, item number two, communications. And, and please read the, can you read the text? Certainly. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment at this meeting after closed session. And there will be an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. Each comment is limited to two minutes. Public comment will be taken both in person and remotely by video or call-in. For each item, the board will take public comment first from people attending the meeting in person and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001, access code 2498-806-0172, and pound and pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, please press star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your TV or radio. Please note that city policies, along with federal, state, and local law, prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. Moreover, public comment is permitted only on matters within the jurisdiction of this meeting body. We thank you for joining us. Mr. Helfon. Thank you. Um, there's no public comment after this item. Madam Secretary, you can call the next item. Item number three, action item, review and approval of the December 2022 board resolution to continue to meet in person with some members possibly attending remotely for at least 30 days pursuant to California government code section 549 Five three E. Okay. Um, you, wait a did you haven't read? Did you read that whole script? She did. Oh, you did it. Well. Okay. We'll take. Uh, <laughs> we'll take public uh, in-person public comment first, and then we'll open the phones for callers. Madam Secretary, call the first. Cicada. Um, should we make the motion first before yes. we do that? Uh, Mr. Yeah. Mr. President, right. I move that we adopt the 
I, Leona Bridges, move that we adopt the uh, resolution. Second. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So motion was made by Commissioner Bridges and seconded by Commissioner Thomas. We will, we have no in-person public at this time. A reminder, any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Mr. Helfon? It's been moved and seconded. Madam Secretary, you want to do the roll call, please? Commissioner Bridges? Aye. Commissioner Driscoll? Aye. Commissioner Gandhi? Aye. Commissioner Helfon? Aye. Commissioner Thomas? Aye. Thank you. We have five eyes. Motion passes. Right. Um, we're going to now proceed into closed session. Um, let me make a just sort of give a little look into how we're going to. We are going to take a break at one o'clock. Um, we'll be out of closed session probably before that, but um, set the, your set sights on the one o'clock for a half hour break. Okay. So I invite everybody to go to the, our commissioners to go to the closed session investments and um, we'll go there. SFGov TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
Um, Roll call. Yes, please. Roll call, Commissioner Bridges. Present. Mr. Bridges, we're taking roll. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Driscoll. Present. Mr. Gandhi. Present. Mr. Halfon. Here. And Commissioner Thomas. Present. Thank you. We have a quorum. Great. The motion is in order to vote whether we disclose the discussions held in closed session. Motion made. A motion to not disclose. To not disclose. Yeah. Thank you. Is there a second? Second. It's been moved and seconded. Madam Secretary, do you want to call the roll? Uh, public comment first. Oh, sorry, public comment. Madam Thank Secretary, you. We have no in-person public comment at this time. A reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you, hearing no calls. Public comment is now closed. Okay, we'll move to um, motions been made to not disclose the um, meeting, the closed session. And um, you want to do a roll call vote, please. Mr. Bridges? Aye. Mr. Driscoll? Aye. Mr. Gandhi? Aye. Mr. Helfon? Aye. Ms. Mr. Thomas? Aye. We have five ayes. Motion passes. Great. Thank you. Uh, next item, please. Item number five, general public comment. We have no in-person public comment. A reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you, hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, um, so we're not going to break at one o'clock. And, um, and so we'll just power through this and um, take leave and, uh, um, we can have our lunch at in the boardroom as we're conducting business, if that's not objectionable to anybody. We, we like to invite everybody to have lunch with us, but <laughs> okay. So uh, we'll move on to item number six. Item number six, action item, approval of the minutes of the November 17, 2022 retirement board meeting. Commissioners, if you have no um, additions or changes to the minutes, we would ask that you uh, provide us with a motion. Move to approve uh, minutes Mr. Vice from President, November meeting. I, Leona Bridges, move that we adopt the minutes from the previous meeting. Second. Thank you. Do you have any public comment? Thank you. We have no in-person public at this time. Uh, reminder to any callers again to Press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, are there any callers? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. It's been moved and seconded. Madam Secretary, um, you want to take a roll call vote? Mr. Bridges. 
Aye. Mr. Driscoll? Aye. Mr. Gandhi? Aye. Mr. Halfon? Aye. Mr. Thomas? Aye. Thank you. We have five ayes. Motion passes. Item seven, please. Item number seven is an action item, the consent calendar. Commissioners, anybody want to um, address any item on the consent calendar or move to move the calendar forward? So moved. I seconded. Okay, it's been moved and seconded to, um, we, uh, can we do public comment, please? Uh, thank you. We have no in-person public comment at this time. Callers, if you have not already done so, please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Here, no calls. Public comment is now closed. Okay, it's been moved and seconded to move the consent calendar forward. Um, uh, Madam Secretary, do you want to do a roll call vote, please? Commissioner Bridges? Aye. Commissioner Driscoll? Aye. Mr. Mr. Gandhi? Aye. Mr. Helfon? Aye. Mr. Thomas? Aye. Thank you. We have five ayes. Motion passes. Great. Thank you. Madam Secretary, you want to call it item eight? Item number eight, discussion item, report on investment performance of the retirement fund for the quarter ended September 30, 2022. Kurt, are good you going to be able to take the lead here? Yeah, I, I won't uh, say much. Uh, good, good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, as is our practice, we'll have uh, Alan Martin at NEPC provide us an update of uh, plan performance through the quarter into September 30th. The headline number is that the portfolio was down about 2.9% for the quarter. Losses for the quarter were led by private equity and public equity, albeit both uh, beat their benchmarks respectively. And gains were uh, seen, you know, substantial gains were actually seen in real assets, which has uh, been our most uh, positive performer for the year. So with that, uh, Alan, I'll turn it over to you and Allo will control your slides. Thank you, Kurt. Can people hear me? Yeah. Good. Uh, you have the third quarter report before you. Kurt has already given you the, the punchline with, re with respect to the quarterly result. This report is going to add context by providing net of fee results and rankings versus peers, as well as decomposing our results by selection and allocation effects at the asset class level. For context, for context at the end of Q2, we pointed out that at that point, we'd had two quarters in the last 30 years where stocks and bonds were down in the same quarter. We also said at that time, if interest rates continued to rise as we expected, we were likely to see another quarter of negative stock and bond returns. And that has proved to be the case. Stocks were down 4.9% in the quarter and the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index was down 4.75%. So a 60-40 portfolio in the quarter was down 4.7% and for the year to date, over 20%. That is the worst start to a year since 1937. So this has been an extraordinarily difficult period. And in that extraordinary difficult period, due to the performance of selection and managers in the ESPERS portfolio, as well as a conservative allocation and a well-diversified one, you were down, as Kurt said, 2.9 in the quarter, 
and 12% for calendar year to date, which is almost half of what the typical 60-40 was down. Since 9.30, stocks have rallied as expectations that inflation was declining increased. And as Allison's report shows later, um, stocks and bonds were up, stocks were up sharply in October and November. Bonds were up modestly, uh, bringing your fiscal year to date results to a positive 0.09%. Now I say that knowing yesterday when the Fed raised rates again, we had another significant decline in equity markets, which has been the pattern. If you look at the monthly returns of the S&P uh, this year, you'll frequently see positive nine, positive eight, and negative nine and negative eight. Extraordinary volatility as the market struggles around the question of whether inflation is actually being contained or not. If you'd go to page uh, two, Kurt, that has the, or Allo, the economic environment, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. Um, you'll see that we this, this environment is characterized by three factors. We've continued to have weak but positive GDP growth and a growth in earnings uh, and uh, jobs. Job creation has continued, which is not typical of, an, of a uh, recessionary environment. Offsetting that, uh, inflation continues to rage. There has been some indication that it is slowing and every time that happens, the markets rally. Uh, our belief is that long-term inflation is still not under control and we're likely to continue to see high inflation. And in that environment, the third and most important factor, the Fed continues to uh, try to tame inflation by raising interest rates, which the Fed did yesterday by another 50 basis points. 10-year treasuries are now at three and a half, interestingly, below the short-term rates. So we don't have a yield curve, we had a, a yield hump. Um, they started the year at one and a half percent. So we've started at 1% actually. So we've seen an extraordinary rise in interest rates. And when interest rates rise, it causes those who hold fixed income to experience declining values and losses. And it also challenges equity markets, which you'll see on the next page, if you look at the market environment uh, for the quarter, that first column is all red. Everything went down, there was no place to hide. Uh, the only positives were a slight positive with respect to levered loans, which is what is uh, the factor against which benchmark uh, private credit, where you have a substantial allocation, and uh, real estate, because it's lagged largely, continued to do well. Everything else was down. If you look at the one year, more of the same, uh, although private equity in that environment did okay. Um, again, private equity values are lagged by about a quarter, so we haven't seen the full extent of that, but essentially an environment that was very difficult. And again, to highlight that, if you'd move forward to page five, Kurt, the, or Allo, I'm sorry. Uh, these, this is this, uh, the return on a 60-40 portfolio for the first nine months of a year, and you can see 2022 is right there with 1937 and 2008, and there's no other period in history as bad as this one. So this is an extraordinarily difficult environment. In that environment, again, we can go to the punchline page for ESFERS, um, Allo on page 15. 
the top line here is your time-weighted net of fee returns for the periods ending 930, following by your ranking in a peer group universe of roughly 57 public funds larger than a billion dollars in asset value. Most importantly, note that all of your returns greater than one year are well in excess of 7.2%. And I'm not gonna take you to the next page, but the next page goes back, goes on to 10, 15, 20, and 30 years. All of your returns are well above your assumed rate. That is very unusual in that in this period, most public funds have lost so much that many public funds are now seeing five, seven, and even 10-year returns below 7%. Um, if you look at line two, it's the return of your funds. Uh, if all allocations were maintained at target and all asset class returns matched policy. So outperforming that means you've added value either through manager selection or positioning. And you can see uh, for every period here, your actual returns exceeded your policy returns and your policy returns over time were quite competitive. So your positioning uh, versus uh, your policy is strong and you've added value through manager selection or portfolio positioning. Over five years, if you looked at those two differences, that is over 3% per annum. If we looked at that in dollar terms, it's roughly four and a half billion dollars. So the actions that you all have accomplished by manager selection and portfolio positioning added over four and a half billion dollars to that that would have been earned by policy. Finally, uh, the staff and, and board adopted a more diversified policy target in 2017. Uh, intentionally to reduce the volatility and protect against the downside. If you look at the tables to the lower right, uh, standard deviation of return is the measure we use to look at volatility. And you can see uh, that that has been in the bottom 6% and bottom 3% in peers uh, in the three and five year period. So we set out to have a more diversified portfolio and reduce downside vol. We've accomplished that. Lastly, uh, typically the measure we use to look at risk-adjusted return to sort of normalize across plans that take different levels of risk is called the Sharpe Ratio. It's calculated by taking the return minus the risk-free rate, which in this period has been close to zero, and dividing by standard deviation. And you see then in Sharpe Ratio, you've been in the top two or 3% of peers for both periods. Uh, Sortino ratios, the same measure, it just looks at downside. And again, uh, a very competitive number uh, with respect to the Sortino ratio. That negative 8.7% return in the one year equates to $3.1 billion in market value. Together with a negative cash flow, which we know we have as a mature fund, on 930, the valuation of the portfolio was 32.56 billion versus 36.2 billion a year ago. The longer results on the next page, uh, again, highlight how extraordinarily successful the fund has been. Every single return number at the top there is in the top 1% of your peer group. Turning now to compliance, if you go to the next page, Alo. 
that second column uh, that says current is the percentage allocation to each asset class as of 930. The column next to that is the long-term board approved target. You can see that all of your allocations are close to target and within range, except private equity, which at 31.6% is above your upper limit. Uh, I would note again, the valuations of private equity are lagged. And as Tanya mentioned earlier, since private equity tends to uh, trail public equity in terms of ups and downs, you're beginning to see a reduction in some of those private equity valuations. In fact, as of June 30th, this number was 32.6. So we're already moving back within that range. Um, cash here does reflect leverage. That's why it's negative. Uh, and you can also note that private equity and public equity, if you totaled the two, uh, come to a roughly 60%, which is really right on target. So again, while we're over the upper limit in private equity, it's actually due to a good thing. We've been so successful and that will moderate as we go forward. Any questions on allocation? If not, if you move forward two pages, uh, this is just a page of total fund asset growth. So if you look at that one year period, your net cash flow was negative 724 million. That's the excess of payouts versus contributions. If you look at the three year period, that number averaged closer to 500 million. So as, uh, as was presented in Anna's risk report, because we were so successful, because we have a funded uh, ratio above one, you're starting to see as we look forward, a reduction in contributions made by the city and members. And that means since, since the distributions associated with pensions uh, does not go down, that we will see more negative cash flow going forward. And again, uh, as we go into the asset allocation planning, um, that, uh, that creates liquidity concerns in the future. If you look currently, that minus 724 million uh, relative to market value is about 2.3%. That is well within the range of other funds. So uh, not an issue now, but becoming an issue as we go forward. Pages 21 to 25, look at risk return versus peers over multiple timeframes. In the interest of time, let's just go to the five-year chart, which is on page uh, 21. Uh, and again, on this chart in that upper left, each of those points is the return plotted on the vertical axis and the volatility plotted on the horizontal axis of a public fund greater than a billion. ESFER's actual is that dark blue circle. It has the highest return of any fund in this universe over the five years, which we noted earlier. And you can see very few funds are less volatile than ESFER's. So mission accomplished in terms of um, moving the fund to have less volatility and yet in periods that were somewhat challenging, we've continued to perform well. Um, and uh, and, and uh, in, a, in a period of five years have done quite well. The light blue circle is your policy. And you can see policy has about median risk, slightly higher return. Um, that means the actual being above and to the left, the actions of selection 
and positioning of the portfolio have not only enhanced the performance of the portfolio, but they've actually reduced the risk as well. Um, next chart, we're gonna look at how we accomplished that outperformance versus policy. Uh, there are a number of attribution pages, but we'll go to page 31, which is five-year attribution. And if you start at the table in the upper right, that light blue line, remember that we had over that period an 8.4% return. The policy returned the 53 uh, and therefore we're trying to explain an outperformance uh, of 3.1%. The columns now are going to break that 3.1% down into positioning of the portfolio, meaning being overweight good things and underweight bad things, versus selection, meaning choosing managers that did better than the benchmark. And as you would expect and hope, the allocation effect was fairly small, 30 basis points, 0.3 which means of that 3.1% outperformance versus policy, 2.9% of it was due to selecting managers that did better than the benchmark. Uh, and while these numbers are very small, you'll see that the only asset class that's essentially underperformed over this period is absolute return. As you know, the benchmark there is a, a T-bills plus five. That's a very aggressive benchmark as we pointed out you've been generating roughly T-bills plus three, so underperformance from absolute return, uh, but positive performance from virtually everything else. The zero in public equity is worth noting. ESFERS, unlike a lot of public funds, has chosen to be active in public equity. And if you remember six months ago, that choice was manifested by an overweight to healthcare, biotech, technology, and China all of which did extraordinarily well, but coming into this, uh, the, the more recent period of rising rates uh, have not done as well. Uh, healthcare has rallied a little bit in the quarter, um, but we're back down to sort of being median with respect to our overall performance of public equity, uh, despite the fact that we've had substantial uh, headwinds more recently. The remainder of the report breaks down into sub-asset classes and physical versus notional. I'd summarize this by saying the conservative position of the portfolio has resulted in significantly less downside than 60-40 and most of our peers, which has preserved the value of our assets. And as markets reset, the interesting thing about rising rates is while it hurts current returns, it starts to build a base for better longer term returns. So at some point when public fixed income starts to yield four and 5%, it becomes interesting again. And in fact, equity and other risk asset class returns should add to that. So we've withstood the fund well, because uh, with, withstood the difficult environment well, um, our allocations to private markets are relatively high and private equity, private credit and real assets have also significantly outperformed the benchmark, uh, the performance of your private equity portfolio in particular. Over the five years, public equity, which is active, has matched the benchmark and peers despite the near-term headwinds. Uh, and that's the key challenge. We, 
We did not sell anything. These are valuations based on holdings. Your liquidity position allowed us to not have to sell things as they dropped, which means uh, going forward, we're well positioned. Um, the question is, uh, is how much uh, additional um, um, uh, risk we want to take in those areas which have, have done well. Uh, the key challenge is, is this just a, a, a resetting of values against a long-term attractive return or have some of the assets become impaired? Leverage has had a modest negative contribution, which you'd expect as rates reset, and the absolute return portfolio uh, has underperformed versus an aggressive benchmark. So I'd uh, stand for questions. I wasn't going to go into the, the detailed uh, sub-asset classes which follow, uh, but happy to take questions. Alan, before we take questions, I, I just want to, for the sake of completeness, uh, note that on, on page 17 of NEPC's report, it does show that in addition to private equity uh, being beyond its uh, long-term range, uh, for some of the reasons that Alan described, namely the sell-off we've seen in public markets, a denominator effect that we are slightly above our range for real assets as well. Now, uh, with the recent rally in public markets that I'll talk about in a, in a moment, that 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 allocation over the bench, over the policy range has diminished a little bit, but again, wanted to point that out. To board Thank members. you, Kurt. That, that's that's really important. Being over policy is not a sin. It's just to understand uh, we're beyond a limit that we thought was important, and understanding the reasons for it and the fact that it's self-correcting in many respects is is important. Okay. Thank you, Alan, for the report. Kurt, is that that complete the Kurt? That that's the extent of uh, okay, great, the presentation, great. the comments, and, and certainly uh, available to answer questions. Great. To the okay, board commissioners, any questions? I'm ready to start. <clears throat> I have four categories of questions. Uh, the semi-unexpected one has to do with the concept of positioning. It's been our decision to be basically at least 53% illiquid. So when I see the numbers making the comparison to the 60-40 or the 60-30-10, which you started doing for us a year ago, <clears throat> our decision to be illiquid is supposed to generate better returns. I'm not trying to diminish the selection effort as a result of staff's hard work, but when you start making comparisons to us to billion dollar funds, the obvious question is, well, how illiquid do they run? How much private equity do those billion dollar funds have versus say funds that might be at the 5 billion plus level? Right. Uh, clearly, Joe, if, if you looked at funds below a billion that don't have the luxury of competent staff, uh, they tend to be very indexed and do not have a lot in private equity. When you get above a billion, it gets substantial. Um, my my particular advisees are all in that 50% range, but they're all conservative like you. Uh, if you went to above five and 10 billion, uh, it would be even greater amounts in private markets. Um, I think in the chart, we provide some of that data, but the universes when you go above 10 billion get to be fairly small. So the easy answer is uh, against this peer group, you probably have at 53% higher allocations to private markets, which have done well, 
but I would say, you know, the, the median in that group is probably in the 40%. So it's not, it's not extraordinary, but uh, your private equity allocation in particular is the one where you have substantially more than peers and, and you can see how well that's done. I okay, guess did that answer I'm your question, to, Joe? I'm sorry. It basically does. I'm trying to say not to get, it's always nice to pat ourselves on the back with good numbers. It's just that our decision to be illiquid, we should be careful, okay? Uh, it's not about that there may be continued, I'm gonna say write downs, but as the private equity market pitches back up, we may see continued drops in those things, okay. Second area, um, in your comments, particularly about the public equity, um, first one is currency. Staff has probably shown it to us, but I don't see in your report, what is our real allocation to currencies other than the dollar? We're very diversified around the world, so maybe we don't have a real, too much of a currency effect. But when I then see on page, I think it's page 78 or 79, how big the change in currency was this last year, whether or not we should be either going back to some sort of a neutral currency hedging issue or how much of our return is coming from how strong the dollar has been. Yeah. It's more of a strategic issue, but I'm just looking at your analysis, I'm trying to figure out whether or not that's something we should be concerned about yeah. or not, or do something about. Yeah, we haven't highlighted it here. You do not try to actively manage currencies. So your currency exposures are the product of your non-US managers not hedging those exposures. Uh, you are exactly right that it has been a huge factor looking backwards. Uh, but in fact, if you looked at the results in the last two or three months, the US dollar has started to turn around and go the other way. So um, most plans don't hedge and simply accept the currency risk associated with an international equity allocation. That's kind of what you do you've done. I do think as we do the asset liability study going forward, um, we should probably look more carefully at how much comes from currency and, and decide whether we ought to hedge. The problem with hedging, Joe, is everybody gets it wrong. So if people looked at history and said we should hedge the US dollar and they did that on September 30th, they, they, they would have lost a ton of money already because these things tend to um, uh, cycle through time. But we'll try to put more in there about what your currency exposure is. Uh, it's certainly not more than anybody else because you're not trying to, to play that game. It's, it's a consequence of being in non-US assets. I would, I would offer that it also currency by uh, form having having exposure to non-US currencies is a significant source of diversification for us. So it's been a headwind recently, but I think philosophically, uh, it's not something we'd want to hedge. Let's say I understand those answers. Part of our history was doing the currency hedging for the neutral, not for alpha. When the numbers are this far out of, uh, I'm going to say the word alignment, the spreads, whether that's a significant time to put the currency hedge just on a neutral currency, not playing the alpha to make money. You're right, most people lose that game. That's what I'm not trying to suggest strategically. If the numbers were not this far separated, I wouldn't even raise the question. Part three, in your comments that follow, um, again, it's way back on page 79, you have, you show the, the PE, the median and the one year trailing and forward. In your earlier comments, when you talk about peers, I'm just curious about where the PE, whether it's the PE Schiller, you use the home index one, 
those are whether those are signals that our staff should be trying to figure out to make more recommendations to tip more money into equities or out. Yeah. I'm just trying to, I guess, Alan, trying to suggest to you that discussion point should be made when you're reviewing our portfolio. I know this is a performance review, but there's some timing issues. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me then lay the question that I'm really trying to understand. Um, and this, because it'll then come back to staff in just a moment. On, it goes to pages, pages, pages 32 and 33. I just want to understand how you report the numbers for the total fund, the equity fund, the fixed income, the total versus the overlay. Yeah. Obviously those numbers are different. If the overlay number is higher than the total fund without, that means the overlay is adding value, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Now these are unweighted numbers on page 32 and 33. So now I want to go back and ask Allison and Kurt the question. I cannot tell from one quarter to the next if using leverage, that is a tactical decision that staff has the authority to decide to um, borrow the money and buy the um, the derivatives, correct? Heard is that what staff? That, that, that is correct. We have that latitude. Right. So I'm just saying this sort of a new a tech tactic or technique or strategy. You wouldn't call it for us delegated to staff. It seems to be adding value. The tip, it was tilted to do more fixed income than equity on a going forward basis. It's, it may be executed via paramedic, but I'm trying to focus in on the, the decision. Who is making that decision to do it, when to do it, and to do more? Because this is around 2% and the limit is 5%, correct? You could do more if you wanted to, right? Correct. We can do up to 5%. Okay. So I can draw one part. It's a negative one part. The, the larger dollar amount is positive. I guess I'm trying to understand, um, not, to, not to give you congratulations, how it's working. Well, there's certainly no congratulations warranted there. And the, to answer your question there, that the, the decisions as to what, how, and when to lever is an ongoing discussion largely among Allison, Anna, and me. And it's done in the context of two things. Uh, our overall uh, asset allocation relative to targets and our situation with respect to liquidity. So those are the two dynamics that we think about when making determinations about when and when to what and when to, to lever. Uh, but to date, as, as Anna has described in the past, uh, leverage for us has been principally uh, focused on levering treasuries. Okay, I know you guys just covered it for the one year review couple of months ago. Uh, just one area I'm monitoring for the obvious reason, but so far it's working well. How it's going forward. It is a tactical decision that the three of you are making. So well done. The question is whether or not or how it can or should be done better. No dissatisfaction. I'm just trying to understand this new dynamic that is these these few points help. Okay, I'll stop. Thank you. And, and Joe, I'd just like to add we get the results from Bank of New York. Uh, and they give us the results with and without leverage, but they nor we have a detailed derivatives accounting system. So currently our ability to break down that leverage 
into asset classes and to look at how much of it is coming from conscious leverage versus the equitization of cash, that's compromise. So the numbers here are true. We're working with Bank of New York and Ana in particular to be able to be more precise about the exact effects of leverage versus some of the other aspects of the portfolio. Uh, but to date, uh, mercifully, you haven't done a lot of leverage because when rates rise and your financing costs go up, leverage doesn't generally pay off. Um, it also improves your liquidity position in the portfolio. Uh, so to date, it's been constructive uh, in an environment where you wouldn't have expected that. Well, that leads back to the signals coming from the PE trailing indicators versus forward indicators. Anyway, I'll stop with my questions. This is Eckley. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Allison and Anna. <clears throat> Okay, sorry, I uh, jumped on uh, asking for other questions. Any further questions? Huh? This is not an action item, correct? Discussion item? Well, I, I would thank Alan and, and Kurt and the team in a very uh, extensive and detailed report. Appreciate it, as usual. So we can move on to call item number nine. Um, do we want to? Public, public comment. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, public Thank you. Uh, we have no in-person public comment at this time. A reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you, hearing no calls. Public comment is now closed. Commissioner Helfand? Let's wait on nine. Uh, Commissioner, do you want to take a uh, 10 minutes to grab a, a box, our box lunch or whatever and come back? Sure. Yeah, okay, so give us 10 minutes, everybody. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
Present. Thank you. Commissioner Driscoll. Present. Mr. Gandhi. Present. Mr. Helfand. Present. And Commissioner Thomas. Present. Thank you, we have a quorum. Okay, we're going to call um, item number nine, I believe is where, and I appreciate everybody um, putting up with us while we're eating, but we're going to power through this. Thank you, item number nine, discussion item, Chief Investment Officer Report. Hello, Allison. Allison, did you want to turn that over to Kurt? Uh, yeah, Kurt will cover that yeah. this afternoon. Allison, no problem at all. And we, we hope you get better soon. Uh, I'll be very brief. This is Allison's report. Uh, I'll highlight a couple of things, uh, speak brief, briefly about performance um, and provide an update on board approved investments. I do want to highlight two sections, though, that I won't cover in Allison's report, uh, the first of which are a description of a variety of initiatives within the investments group around uh, a variety of processes portfolio construction, and then a re-underwriting of the themes, specifically some of the themes that Alan Martin referenced earlier, biotech or life sciences, China and, and innovation. Um, and then next I wanted to highlight that at the end of the report, uh, we do have our mandatory fee disclosures or the, the fee disclosures that are required under California government, um, um, sorry, uh, California government code. Uh, quickly about performance, as Alan Martin noted, the public equity or public markets have rallied the last two months. In fact, November uh, was the uh, October, November were the first consecutive positive months that we've had in 2022 in the public equity markets. In this, in November, performance in the public equity markets was actually led by emerging markets and specifically China. Uh, many of the Chinese indices, including our managers, were up almost 20% in anticipation of a reopening, which we have subsequently seen. For the month, SPURS uh, assets were up approximately 1.9%. And as Alan noted, for the fiscal year, we are roughly flat and down 9% for the year. Uh, assets at the end of the month are estimated to be 33.1 billion. Um, turning to uh, 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 board approved investments, uh, at its meeting on October 20th, uh, 2022, the Retirement Board approved in closed session an investment of up to $50 million to Center Bridge Flex Partners. Uh, our investment of 50 million closed on November 23rd, 2022. This investment is classified as a distressed special situations investment within SFRS private credit portfolio. This is SFRS private credit portfolio's fourth investment with Center Bridge and uh, SFRS overall fifth investment with Center Bridge. Next, uh, at its meeting on October 20th, 2022, the Retirement Board approved in closed session an investment of up to 40 million to Volition, uh, Volition Capital Five. Uh, our investment of $40 million in Volition Capital Five closed on November 17th, 2022. This investment will be classified as a growth capital within SFRS private equity portfolio. So that's it. Obviously, there's a lot of material here, but uh, no further comments. Or Mr. Helfand, I'll turn it back to you and the board for any questions. Commissioner Helfand, you're muted. Thank you. Uh, any further questions or comments? No. 
right, this is discussion item. We don't have um, public comment. We can move to calling item number 10, please. We need we, public comment. We need public comment. Oh, we do? I'm sorry. Yes, uh, we do not have any in-person public comment at this time. A reminder to any callers to please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Madam Secretary, item number 10. Would you call item number 10? Item number 10, discussion item, San Francisco Deferred Compensation Plan Monthly Report. No. You're muted. No? We cannot. Thank you, Karen. Good afternoon, commissioners. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Karen, for allowing me to uh, sit in your seat for a moment here. Um, commissioners, thank you so much for your time today. Um, before you is the monthly activity report. If there are no questions on our activity report, I'm happy to give you a few other oral updates at this time. Okay. So, um, as you know, as you know, T. Rowe Price has been selected as our target date fund manager. We have been working with them in getting the demographic information, which also includes pension information so that they can begin designing the glide path. We are also in the midst of contract negotiations and are working with Russell on an extension. Our contract with Russell expires at the end of this year, which is the end of this month. And so we plan on extending our contract to, with them um, until June of next year, as we're targeting that to be the rollout of the new target date fund. Um, with regards to target date fund work, we have a meeting with the Deferred Compensation Committee in January. We look forward to presenting a recommendation to the committee, which will include asset class recommendations and permission to begin any manager searches in the event there's any new asset classes or uh, replacement asset classes uh, that uh, comes out of this research. Uh, we look forward to sharing that with the committee and benefiting from their guidance. That's um, target date fund news. As you know, uh, the contributions are increasing for 2023. It's about a 2,000 
uh, a dollar increase for the regular contributions. Um, we had shared those with you last month and that information is available online. We've also been working very closely across departments just to make sure that they get the word out as well to their employees. So we're hoping to piggyback off the great momentum that we receive from NRSM and um, have the departments include references to, to the SFDCP and contributions in their respective communications. And um, finally, uh, we have, um, uh, we have, we are planning to in the new year, we're planning to reduce the number of our weekly webinars. Um, and the reason for that right now, the webinars are uh, being hosted three days a week. It is the same presentation um, on a particular day. So Fridays is, um, you know, women in investing and, and Tuesdays is after tax and that's repeated. The idea for reducing uh, the number of webinars is to encourage the counselors to get out in the field more. Um, as, you, as we know, San Francisco is open and more people are returning into the office and people seem to benefit very much from our in-person outreach. Uh, for instance, one of our counselors went to one of the uh, Muni barns and they were so excited uh, with the information that he provided, they even gave him his own office to encourage him to continue coming. So, you know, it does range across the department. Some departments are still sort of, you know, doors closed and other departments can't wait to see us. So I uh, wanted to share uh, that news uh, with the board as well. And I believe that covers everything at the highest level. I'm happy to answer any questions at this time. Commissioner, any questions, comments? All right. Thank you for the presentation. We'll have um, public comment, please. Thank you. Uh, we have no in-person public comment at this time. A reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Madam Secretary, will you call item number 11, please? Item number 11, discussion item, schedule of 2023 retirement board meetings. Allison, are you up? Are you doing this? I think I can handle it for her. Okay. Um, commissioners, before you, you have um, a schedule of meetings for next year. The board meetings are the dates that are given to you in this item are the dates that would be our regularly scheduled meetings if we continue um, with the Thursday morning meetings. And we wanted to have that before you so that you could make plans. And we know you're all busy. And if you could set your schedules aside to attend on those dates, that would be appreciated. And also if there are problems, we can at least know in advance and, and perhaps make some accommodation. Uh, Allison has also provided to you some uh, a reminder that the committees also need to meet and she provided a, a tentative schedule of, of when we would like to set these meetings and she has also highlighted some um, near-term priorities that we wanted 
you to keep top of mind so that uh, you can understand why we need to, to set these meetings. In particular, we're looking at operations oversight committee will need to meet once in order to um, review the proposed budget so that the board can vote on it uh, within the charter time frame of I think it's February 22nd of next year. And we also have some governance items that need to be addressed by the committee and the board, as well as some personnel items. And I'm happy to um, take any comments that any of the commissioners may have at this time. Uh, yes, I have a I have a question. Um, Vice President Helpon. Go ahead. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, because I'm confused me? because I thought we were having the Thursday meetings until the end of this calendar year, uh, June fifteenth, and we would revisit the meeting date. So I'm a little confused. Commissioner, I'm unable to speak to that. We're set. We wanted to put them before you just in case this is the schedule that remains for all of next year. Okay, because I, I thought we voted to have it until June. I, I think, Allison, is that you trying to weigh in there? Can you hear me okay? Um, yes. Thank you, Karen. Um, Commissioner Bridges, what we were trying to accomplish here is what we typically do every December, which is to put forward a calendar um, and establish that calendar for the fi uh, the following year. So trying to be consistent with past precedent, we've put the dates forward um, because we have only approved the meeting dates as you suggested for the board through June. So right. for point of discussion, I put forward the dates that if we were to stick with the, um, the current dates, um, this isn't an action item, we're not voting on it. I just wanted to provide information um, should we, we stick with those dates, but at some point we okay, will make that's fine because I, I just remember voting on until because that was a, a big point for me. And then we revisit it once we have the elections and go through the next cycle. Okay. Thank you. I think um, uh, I, I would like to reiterate what Karen said. I think most importantly, we'd like to be able to get some of the committee meetings on the calendar. We know how incredibly busy you all are and, and how it's hard to get things scheduled. So if we can get those on folks calendar. So you can plan and we can plan, that would be fantastic. Right, and I think we have some committee dates uh, set for the bird comp. I was shocked they weren't on this sheet. So uh, I will circle back on that. They, they uh, came in the, the day after the materials went out. So that's All why right. they haven't updated, Thank but they you are. So much. Uh, Thanks. So can you hear me? Am I, okay. Um, we, Okay. Got it. All right. Me being, um, we need to, we as a board need to address helping Allison and staff find times to get these committee meetings set and, and lined up so that we can do actually the business that we should be doing in an organized manner. And that involves a lot of committee work and um, just more deeper dives on issues in the, in the um, board meetings. So I can only encourage all commissioners to um, 
jump in when requested to find whether it's a doodle or or whatever to find a time to have a meeting we need to have these meetings and um it makes staff it, not having them it, it is does erode staff's time so that's just um and and i know that um president sapai agrees with me on that so Thank you for the report. Question is, is there a conflict between the July 12th investment committee meeting and the July 12th policy oversight committee? I, that, on, I don't on the oversight. Theoretically, they can meet in the same day, but you're right. It depends upon what is on the schedule. Okay, well, that's July. That's supposed to be more firm the first six months. I have talked to some of the dates. So the question has to do something that the committee chair about. So thank you. Okay. So thank you for that report. Are we, Madam Secretary? Sorry. Thank you. We have no in-person public comment at this time. Um, a reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, can we call item number 12, please? Item number 12, discussion item, fiduciary governance training. Good afternoon, commissioners. I will be presenting you with the fiduciary governance training, and I am joined by Ashley Dunning and Yulia Oriol from Nossaman. They are co-chairs of the Public Pensions and Investments Group and also are fiduciary governance consultants. Now, you may recall that we had a fiduciary duties presentation in August, I'm oh, sorry, April of 2022, um, and maybe we should actually get it on the screen. Were you going to do that for us, darling? And so we are on slide three now. So you may recall we had an April 2022 fiduciary duties presentation. We are going to give a quick recap of that presentation, but do a deeper dive on two topics. Uh, and those are the roles and responsibilities of public retirement system trustees and the prudent delegation of fiduciary duty applicable to investment functions. And we hope that this deeper dive will help us set the stage for tasks that you will be uh, encountering in 2023 and beyond. And now I will turn over to Ashley for the next few slides. Thank you, Cecilia, and good afternoon, members of the board. Uh, to recap briefly the primary topics of the presentation that uh, Cecilia and I provided in April. Uh, first of all, we defined what a fiduciary is in the context of a, of a public retirement system. We discussed in some depth the duty of loyalty that you all have as trustees to SFRS, uh, which is the duty to uh, to comply with the exclusive benefit rule 
uh, use trust funds for the benefit solely for the benefit of your members and beneficiaries and defray reasonable expenses of, return, of uh, administering the plan. The duty of prudence, which is to act as a prudent fiduciary with, uh, with experience in the areas of, uh, that matter to the retirement system. The, and I think there's a typo there, it's not with a like experience, but with experience. Um, with to, the duty to diversify investments, which is a specific duty under the California Constitution that applies to you as trustees of this retirement system. The duty to assure the competency of the retirement system's assets to pay promised benefits. That's a fundamental duty of a trustee of a retirement system to make sure benefits are timely paid on time and that you have the assets to do that. And finally, to administer the plan in, in accordance with plan terms and other applicable law. There, uh, again, to uh, only provide what is provided, what is permitted by the plan terms, um, but to provide that. We talked about the differences between the fiduciary and the settler functions of a public retirement system. And as a brief refresher on that, the fiduciary is the trustee who's administering the plan and compliance with your fiduciary responsibilities. The settler is the city who sets the terms of the plan originally through the municipal code, uh, the legislature to some of uh, less in a city retirement plan, but to the extent that there are government code provisions that apply to you that adopts those. Um, but more importantly, from, from the perspective of SFRS, the city charter and um, the municipal code and related provisions are adopted by the settlor, who's the uh, board of supervisors in this case. That is not your role though, when you're sitting here as a trustee on the retirement board, you're acting in a fiduciary role. And then we also began our discussion of the topic that's going to be a focus today. And that is how fiduciaries prudently delegate certain of their responsibilities to other fiduciaries and then manage those delegations. Because as we said up on the second bullet point or sub bullet point in the top, the duty of prudence requires you to act as a prudent fiduciary with experience, but there are going to be a number of areas where what the, the prudent thing to do is to delegate to those who are experts. So we'll talk about that a little bit more. Next slide, please. Um, Recapping, well, now turning actually to the roles and responsibilities that you each have. The, an, an interesting component of your responsibility as a SFRS trustee is that you have a number of different roles that we've outlined on this slide. The first we've already just discussed a bit, and that is your role as a trustee or a fiduciary, which brings with it a whole host of responsibilities that the law affords enormous, um, puts a lot of importance on. The second role is as a public official. So unlike private plans governed by ERISA that are governed by people in the private sector, 
you are administering a public plan and under California law, you're considered a public official who manages public investments. And that makes you a public official who therefore is subject to conflict of interest rules, is subject to open meeting laws, is subject to a whole host of rules that apply to you as public officials that again, would not apply to you if you were a private sector trustee of an ERISA plan. That's a different scenario than what you have here. Um, third, you are assigned authority specifically over the administration of the system and the investment of funds of the retirement system. And you retain in all instances responsibility for the oversight and monitoring both of the SFERS fund, so the defined benefit fund, and the San Francisco Defined Compensation Plan, the DC plan. The fourth responsibility that is discrete, it's part of the others, but it's a discrete responsibility to be recognized because it has um, particular uh, responsibilities that flow from it. That is your role as a decision maker who has quasi judicial authority over matters within the retirement system jurisdiction. The most obvious example there is disability retirement where you're actually adjudicating the rights of somebody to receive or not to receive a disability retirement. And then finally, you're a policymaker with some quasi legislative authority over the governance of the retirement system. I think the best example of that is the actuarial function that you have in consultation with your actuarial services coordinator and your actuarial consultant uh, determining what your various assumptions will be that set the contributions that are required to be paid to fund the retirement system. That's a policymaker role. Next slide, please. In thinking about board governance with respect to that fiduciary role, which is the first bullet point on the last slide, we note that it's important for trustees to understand and comply with their fiduciary responsibilities of care and loyalty. And we'll talk about that as it applies to uh, particular functions of the retirement system. Secondly, each of you come to this role from a different place. Some of you are appointed, some of you are elected, and those, um, the way in which you come to the board is part of the plan design. It's anticipated that you'll come from those different places. But once you assume a position on the retirement board, you all are co-fiduciaries with the same responsibilities to the overall best interest of members and beneficiaries in the security of their retirement benefit. Um, I pause there for a moment because it this, this responsibility has two parts. One is it illustrates that an appointed member has no different responsibility to say the person or the entity, the city that appointed it, than an elected member who was elected by the membership. You all have the same duty of loyalty. Secondly, that duty of loyalty is something specific. 
and it's something to something specific. It's not simply to look out for all interests that a particular member may have. Your responsibility is to make sure your members are timely paid the benefits that are afforded to them under the plan. It's a very specific role that you have as a trustee. Um, and that duty to your participants and beneficiaries under the California Constitution takes precedence over any other duty. So there is no duty to sacrifice the security of retire promised retirement benefits, or at least vested promised retirement benefits to your members um, because it's too expensive to the employer. That doesn't take, um, that doesn't, well, while discussions of um, mitigating volatility, uh, of uh, managing cost may be appropriate in the prudent judgment of the board, what is most critical is to making sure that you are funding the plan in a way that's going to be able to allow us to pay the promised benefit when they're due. Uh, and, and we note at the end here that trustees do need to understand the risk to FERS and its agents and beneficiaries when one deviates from these principles. So they're really, really sacred, important principles under California law. And, um, and they're complicated. But as you articulate the rationale for your decision making, as you think about them yourselves, um, please do keep in mind these really important fiduciary governance uh, roles that you have and the responsibilities that come with them. Next slide, please. Now we'd like to go through a few do's and don'ts that incorporate the principles that you just heard about from Ashley. So um, the first item there of what you should be doing is considering how investments of the retirement plan ensure the ability of SFRS to timely pay retirement benefits. And you may recall from a moment ago that goes to the duty to, to the duty you owe to participants and beneficiaries. Um, but a don't would be the retirement retirement board members considering whether the retirement plan investments further the city's policy goals. So that would would not be fulfilling your fiduciary duty. Uh, another thing that you should be doing is assessing whether. SFRS's administrative policies and actions further its obligation to provide accurate information regarding plan benefits to members. Uh, but a don't would be directing retirement staff to meet with city leaders to follow their instructions regarding implementation of the plan. Um, and that would be, you know, any city elected leaders. So um, another item that you should be doing is determining actuarial assumptions as recommended by the actuary so as to fund SFRS to pay promised retirement benefits when due. But what you should not be doing in this, in this capacity is assessing whether actuarial assumptions will result in retired in required contributions that impact the city's current budget and how that will play out in the city's budget uh, calculations. Should be really looking just as at whether 
um, you can pay the retirement benefits when due to participants and members. Next slide, please. So now we'd like to go a little bit further into how the board governs in a fiduciarily compliant manner. And um, starting off here, very important role is selection, monitoring, and compensation of the CEO, CIO, which you did this past year, and also in the selection of the actuary. Another way to prudently govern is to delegate key responsibilities, including certain decision-making regarding the administration of SFERS in the investment of its assets. And that goes to what you heard a little bit about earlier from Ashley, which is delegating some key functions to you know, knowledgeable staff or other experts. You also can govern in a fiduciarily compliant manner through the use of committees, as uh, Vice President Helfand just mentioned, uh, that maximizes productivity and provides oversight. Those committees include the investment committee, which, which contains all the members of the board, the deferred compensation plan, operations oversight, governance, and personnel. Next slide, please. Another important way to govern in a fiduciarily compliant manner is through the development of and collective adherence to policies and applicable laws. You heard a little bit about how you are a public official and as such, you must be compliant with California ethics rules, including gift reporting and limitations and open meeting rules. Um, an example of an open meeting rule is that you have to notice your meetings, provide the public the opportunity to participate. Um, and um, a, a violation of open meeting rules would be for uh, serial meetings to occur where the public hasn't been invited. For, and that can happen if you have fewer members of the board participating in meetings that haven't been publicly noticed. It could be less than a quorum, but they are meeting either with the same person from outside the organization or within the board who is who is relying relaying to board members at subsequent meetings what other board members think. So that would be a violation of the open meeting rules. Um, and you need to avoid risk to SFERS, its board members and other agents by complying with these rules. Um, another important thing that you do is deliberate with respect to SFERS administration of the plan and investment of its assets, and also through receiving and commenting on reports by staff and outside advisors. Next slide, please. Continuing with the discussion of uh, oversight here, and focusing particularly on oversight of staff. Uh, as Cecilia noted, the uh, selection of staff compensation, hiring and, and compensation of your CEO, CIO is really fundamental to your oversight. Uh, how does that play out for you to be able to effectively monitor staff? First of all, your CEO, CIO is a direct report to the board, uh, so are your, so is your legal counsel. Uh, 
certain consultants and other advisors is appropriate as well. Your CIO, CEO, CIO is accountable to the board and to any committees that you have regarding executive staff and consultants and will report to the board regarding significant matters. Uh, as part of this monitoring and oversight, it is important to work closely with the CEO, CIO to develop business or performance objectives that can then be measured the following year as you provide your annual performance evaluation to your CEO and CEO, CIO, and your actuarial services coordinator. And the board is, um, is engaged in that personnel evaluation process right now uh, and has been asked to set a personnel committee meeting in January in order to work with your CEO, CIO in developing um, performance objectives for the latter half of your fiscal year. You know, as noted, you have a new CEO, CIO, so there's been a lot of sort of transition, if you will. Um, but now appears to be the time from a governance perspective to put pen to paper and develop some objectives. Uh, and your uh, evaluation policy, your CEO evaluation policy anticipates that the personnel committee will work with the CIO, CEO on doing that. And so we urge you to set a meeting in um, January with the uh, chair of the personnel committee and the members of the per personnel committee agreeing to a particular date where you can go through and have those um, put in place and then bring them to the board for adoption in January as well if possible. So that you have a full six months that your uh, CEO, CIO can work towards those. Uh, you're also going to need to finalize the personnel evaluation for your actual services coordinator, which is a bit behind schedule, but uh, because a committee meeting has not been set of the personnel committee, but will be set, we trust, in January of 2023 so that you can get that taken care of as well. Next slide, please. With respect to investments, the full board of SPURS oversees investments. Um, the board approves investment objectives, strategies, plans, and guidelines for both those, the investments of the defined benefit plan and the deferred compensation plan. The investment, uh, the board develops and confirms or amends the investment policy statement at least every two years. And the charter for the board says that you will approve investment partnerships and advisors in the alternative and real estate asset classes and allocations. What staff has noted though, is that in practice, the board has come to um, approve private, both private and public investments in all asset classes. And one of the key questions that we are gonna um, provide some discussion opportunity and, and education on today 
relates to different delegation models with respect to investments and how the board may wish to consider approaching that topic uh, for 2023. And finally, the charter says that the board will commission a study of the assets and liabilities. So do an asset liability um, modeling study at least every three years. Next slide, please. Each of your standing committees has a charter as well. And we've outlined here the primary roles that those committees are to play. The investment committee at SFERS uh, has not to date at least been a decision making group, um, but it does review and approve significant policies and strategies and receive education prior or supposed to prior to presenting them to the board and uh, formulating and recommending environmental, social and governance policies to the board, monitoring compliance and undertaking other ESG related initiatives. Your DC plan committee recommends to the board investment or other policies pertaining to the DC plan, appropriate uh, provider structure for the DC plan and appointment of vendors who provide investment, education, record keeping and other services to the DC plan. It also reviews the performance of your vendors to the DC plan. And then finally, the personnel committee, as noted, um, assist the CEO and CIO and the actual services coordinators um, in terms of reference policies and importantly, the performance evaluation and advises the board and the CEO on any other pertinent matters pertaining to human resource policy or strategy that is agendized for it to consider. Next slide, please. Uh, two more committees, standing committees. We have the Operations Oversight Committee, which assists in the oversight responsibility of the board pertaining to operation risk management and the quality assurance project that the board engaged in, addresses information technology and data security considerations, for strategic planning, customer service, and member education services. Also, policy-related matters pertaining to audits, examinations, investigations, or inquiries of the city controller and other state, local, and federal agencies are to go through the Operations Oversight Committee, as well as the annual budget. And finally, the Governance Committee. The Governance Committee is to develop and recommend terms of reference for the board, each of its standing committees, specifically for the president and vice president of the board, for the CEO, CIO, and the actuarial services coordinator. The governance committee is also to review existing governance policies and recommend new policies to the board and monitor compliance with your governance policy and address violations. The governance committee also does need to meet soon. And we'd recommend that you um, calendar that meeting for January if possible or February, because you have a whole host of policies, about 10, that were up for review in December of this year on their five-year schedule. And uh, again, with new uh, administration coming in, we're at a time where we've reached that, that period where uh, they need to be reviewed. And we recommend that you do that. 
um, with the assistance of the chair of that committee. Next slide, please. There are over two dozen board governance policies that cover various topics, including, but not limited to board communications, education and travel, board performance evaluations, monitoring and reporting, asset allocation and credited interest. Uh, there are terms of reference as well for five of the five standing committee meetings, the board, the president and vice president, CEO, CIO, and the actuarial services coordinator. There's also a code of fiduciary conduct, ethics and, and governance for the board. The policies, the terms of reference and code of conduct must be reviewed periodically for updates and compliance. And as you heard from Ashley just a moment, moment ago, most have a review schedule and many are due for review either at the end of this year or next year. Next slide, please. Just one line. I was going to say on that last slide, though, just for a moment, that um, the, the board adopted these uh, terms of reference and governance uh, policies to provide a framework for, for good governance practices for the board. Um, and the, these policies cover just a wide range of activities from um, communications. There's a communications policy, as noted. Um, here and in other slides, their education and travel policies. Uh, and uh, one of the, the board charter actually says that each of you is to sign an affirmation that you've reviewed and are complying with certain of those policies. And, and I urge you also to, um, to, to understand that that will come to you for review and it's important to take the time to to review them to make sure you are in compliance. Um, the board communications policy was revised a couple of years ago uh, so that it made clear how trustees are and are not to communicate to members, beneficiaries, um, and vendors, and also, or potential vendors and also how you're to communicate with your CEO, CIO with respect to those topics if you do. Um, another important topic that was addressed in one of those policies was uh, that board members are not to assign tasks to SFRS staff except for the CEO, CIO. That's a, that's a cost management and SFRS management um, pol based policy that you've all adopted and need to comply with. So um, just being familiar with those policies is, is really important. Um, and here we're outlining what exists in terms of the policies, in terms of references that have been adopted and noting that they cover all of these different areas, governance, investments, benefits administration, operations, human resources, communications, legislation, litigation, some of your key appointments and monitoring and reporting. Next slide, please. The 
charter that applies to the board is quite extensive. Um, again, I'd urge you all to refresh on what it covers, um, recognizing that with respect to all of the duties articulated under that policy, they're to be um, complied with in using the scale, care, prudence, and diligence of somebody with experience in those matters. And in order to do that, in order to comply with that prudent fiduciary with experience responsibility, you really do need support from your CIO, CEO, CIO, and staff and other advisors in discharging your duties. Um, and that involves a certain amount of delegation and then you provide oversight and monitoring. The governance committee's terms of reference notes that it is to approve or amend the SFRS mission statement, rules and regulations, terms of reference and policies. Uh, it identifies how to elect the president and vice president on an annual basis. Um, actually, this excuse me, this is the governance responsibility of the board itself. Uh, establishes or describes how you establish your standing committees and appoint board members and chairs to each. And then importantly, what happens after that? Once you've appointed the chairs of each of your committees, then what does that committee chair need to do? What, what the term of reference says is that the committee uh, is to meet with staff and, and set, have those meetings, those public meetings that comply with the Brown Act and the Sunshine Ordinance, where you set goals together, you develop agendas for what you want to accomplish for the year, uh, and then you report to the board. Because in most of those circumstances, the committees don't take the final action. The committee will recommend an action that then comes to the board. Uh, you're also to ensure that fiduciary education programs are in place, such as the one that we're having today, that gives you uh, training and what you need to know. And also the charter says that you'll conduct periodic board performance assessment. So you sort of assess yourself. So we can talk about that at another time too, uh, in terms of whether the board would like to, to pursue that. Next slide, please. As to investments, the term of reference for the board says that you'll approve broad investment objectives and strategies, an investment policy statement and plans and guidelines. And that's consistent with your responsibility as a policymaking board to do those things. Um, as noted before, it says that you'll approve partnerships and advisors in alternative and real estate asset classes and allocations there too. It does not go as far as you currently do, which is to approve uh, investments across all assets, which is gonna lead to our final topic of today relating to delegation and investments and whether there's an opportunity to, to consider other models. Um, commissioning a study of SFRS assets and liabilities every three years is within that term of reference and then responsibilities with respect to the DC plan. It covers benefit administrations, approve administrative policies and COLAs, establish rules and procedures regarding administration of benefits as required by the city charter and administrative code and ensure timely distribution of the annual member statement that's laid out as part of your responsibilities. Next slide. Moving to operations. Again, these are big picture items where you certainly must be delegating to your 
to your expert staff to make sure that the um, system is timely collecting contributions, uh, that budgets are prepared and you adopt them, ensuring funding to provide for a financial audit, taking any corrective measures that are needed, the annual approval of the actuarial valuation and applied assumptions within it is critical and you do that in consultation with your actuary as well as your actuarial uh, services coordinator. You determine the employer contribution rates which are set through your valuation and you do an actuarial audit every five years. As to human resources, you've already appointed your CEO, CIO. Uh, now you're you're at the next step of needing to, um, through the personnel committee, set those performance evaluation uh, objectives. And you also do that as your actuary and, and performing personnel evaluations for each of those two. Next slide. On the communications front, you approve a member communications plan. You conduct your meetings open to the public in compliance again with Brown Act and the Sunshine Ordinance. Legislation and litigation, you are responsible for approving recommendations that the, um, or not approving them, but considering them, that the CEO, CIO brings to you to settle um, matters or to engage in legal actions. You make recommendations regarding legislation intended to facilitate facilitate the efficient benefit or efficient benefits or investment administration. And then your policy also says that you're to refrain from advocating for or taking positions on legislation that's intended to reduce, improve, or expand benefits provided by the system. Essentially, as the administrator of the plan, you are administering the plan that's adopted already. Next slide, please. Key appointments. Uh, we've discussed this a bit already, but uh, your key appointments uh, do require prudence in all of these areas where you're operating and you select and or ratify certain service providers that include but are not limited to your consulting actuary, your investment consultants, uh, legal and fiduciary counsel. Monitoring and reporting, establish and update proper uh, monitoring and reporting through your terms of reference, your governance policies, you monitor the performance of the fund, you monitor the effectiveness and efficiency of the administration of SFRS, and again, you perform, you, you do your annual performance evaluations. Next slide, please. We mentioned a few of the policies of the board, and I'm going to highlight one uh, which impacts all the board members, which is the education and travel policy. I would encourage you all to take a look at that after this meeting. Um, and you see there that there are various objectives for, for this policy, but the main idea is that we want to ensure that all board members are provided with the adequate opportunity to acquire the knowledge needed to effectuate their fiduciary duties. Um, and um, it also facilitates travel in order for board members to obtain those objectives. Now, the goals are very important because the idea here is that you want to secure a useful level of understanding in each identified topic area, which I will get to on the next slide. And members are encouraged to attend conference 
conferences that address topics other than specific investments. And you might find that you were drawn to one topic or another, but it's very important to have a, a broad exposure to all the topics upon which you should be uh, educating yourself. Uh, you should also participate in internal education seminars and briefings such as this one. And you're required under the policy to receive at least eight hours of training per year on identified topics. Next slide, please. Um, this quote at the top, I think is important to keep in mind. Board members agree to pursue appropriate education across a range of pension related areas, rather than limiting their education to particular areas. And without reading through all the following bullet points in the interest of time, I'll just highlight a few. You should be getting training on fiduciary responsibilities, ethics, governance, and all those other topics there rather than again, just being attending a, a conference in one or a few of these topics in, in, in a given year. Uh, next slide, please. Keep in mind that prior board approval is required in certain instances, such as seminars and conferences that require reimbursement of expenses from SFERS association meetings, due diligence visits, or other board business requiring travel outside of the nine Bay Area counties, and acceptance of any gifts which enable board members to attend uh, seminars and conferences. Please keep in mind that review and approval of educational travel will depend on the cost, substance, and quality of the seminar or conference. And then after you attend the conference, you should complete a brief written assessment of the quality and relevance of each conference attended and indicate the educational focus of the conference in relation to the identified topics. Uh, you should also report to the board on information or knowledge attained at the conference for the benefit of the board members who did not attend. And these two last bullet points may seem kind of perfunctory, but they are very important so that the other board members can benefit from your knowledge and experience when you've attended an educational seminar. Next slide, please. All right, so now we're going to switch gears a little bit to focus, uh, to do a deeper dive on um, delegation. And I will set up this topic to provide the framework for the delegation, but we're really going to get into the um, nuts and bolts of it when Yulia describes how this can be applied in, in a particular circumstance. So first, just noting that the uh, obligation that trustees have as prudent people that there are certain contexts where uh, a prudent person is to delegate its responsibilities. Um, and so I provided the language from the restatement third of trust here to articulate that idea. Next slide, please. Then noting that prudence applies to all aspects of the question, whether you're to delegate or you are going to delegate a certain responsibility how you do so, to whom you do so, and then how you supervise. Next slide, please. Importantly, when either you or the board CIO delegates fiduciary duties to staff, the staff assume those fiduciary responsibilities to the extent that they are delegated. And so you shouldn't be concerned that they somehow have a lesser level of duty than you do because your staff has those duties as well. 
um, note that when the duty of loyalty is assigned to a third party, uh, say an investment manager, their duty then is to SPURS itself, not to the members and beneficiaries of the plan. So there is a slight difference there. Also, with respect to some of your investments, you're going to get a lot of pushback from your manager with respect to that particular duty. So, so there is a there is a, a, a dynamic that exists in in that arena as you delegate your responsibilities, and you retain fiduciary duties to the extent that they are not delegated to others. Um, and in fact, you always retain fiduciary duties with respect to your oversight obligations. Next slide, please. Critically here though, please note that effective delegation is a key component of fiduciary risk management and that appointing a fiduciary is itself a fiduciary function. Uh, and we've included the same principles of care and loyalty that apply on this slide as we've discussed throughout. Next slide. So to avoid redundancy, I'm not going to go through this slide specifically um, for the full first bullet points, but um, the second set of bullet points are important because it notes that relying on experts and using experts does mean that those experts need to have the appropriate qualifications be provided with accurate full information in order for you to properly rely on them. Next slide, please. Well, now we'd like to talk a little bit more specifically about investment delegation and you, the members of the governance committee for now, uh, from last year may recall that in May 2021, this topic did come before them and was approved under a recommendation by uh, the CE, CIO at the time, but it did not go to the full board for approval. Now that we have a new CIO, CEO, uh, she would like to revisit this topic um, and uh, that will come before the board and or the investment committee in a future meetings. Um, so very generally, there are various models for investment delegation. One of, one of them is when the board reviews, evaluates and approves all investments and terminations. Second one would be the opposite, was when the board delegates investment decisions to the CIO and, and monitors execution of that delegation. And that would be the CIO and staff. And then the third model is a hybrid where the board makes certain decisions, but delegates to staff certain other decisions. And those delegations can be according to various guidelines, could depend on fund size, whether the investment is public or private, um, could be a delegation for existing managers only, for re-ups, additional commitments, and co-investments only. So there are various models that are available. Before we move on, I think Commissioner Driscoll would like to make a comment. It was not. Okay. All right. Well, I let me say it out loud to everybody here in case it it was not approved. Okay. It was planned. A lot of work was done on it, but it never came back to the committee for approval by the committee, let alone it never went to the full board. That was the plan, but it never happened. So 
that statement you made a moment ago, I do not want anybody to misunderstand what you said because it was incorrect. Okay, well, thank you for the correction. I was not uh, in this role at the time, so I appreciate the background. Okay. That time, by the way, since that time, there's been a lot of changes in the committee. Nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Okay. Thank you. All right, uh, I will now turn over this topic to Yulia to discuss more uh, specifically delegation regarding investments. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, next slide, please. With respect to delegation regarding investments, there's various considerations for the retirement system. Um, here we list for you the various considerations, such as assets under management, what we refer to as AUM of the system, asset allocation and portfolio construction, whether it's passive or active management. Uh, there's also various asset classes that need to be considered, as well as the expertise of the investment staff with respect to investments and in those various asset classes. You also look at the role of the investment consultant regarding the various investment opportunities and the opportunities to do diligence. Uh, in addition, we look at the documentation considerations before recommendations of the investments, um, as well as business negotiations and review. Keep in mind that there will be legal negotiation and legal review apart from the business review. And of course, it's very important to note reporting and monitoring obligations and delegation. Oh, there you go. Is that better? Yes. Okay. Uh, next slide, please. Additional factors that impact the scope of potential delegation and decision making is the fund size of the investment, as well as the board size and membership composition, the authority and responsibility of the board, board officers, and leadership, as well, important to note the size of the investment involved, uh, which will be a critical factor in delegation. We also look at the various leverages we may have with certain managers and the track record and performance of those managers when they're being selected. Uh, and finally- I think the microphone is off a little bit again. Or move. move what you're reading from on top of your keyboard, then you'll be looking at your notes and speaking at the microphone. This little off button. You might need tech help. Yeah, it, it, it looks like my microphone is off. Yeah. 
Thank you. I apologize for that. Oh, much better. Um, so as I was explaining, the additional factors that impact the scope of potential delegation and decision making is the fund size, the board size and membership, authority and responsibility, officers and leadership, the size of the investment, which is a, is a critical component of delegation, um, as well as leverage that you may have with various managers based on their track record and performance and the need for external expertise and services. There we go. Next slide, please. So what does investment due diligence entail? What does it look like? Uh, next slide, please. When we're looking at the objectives of due diligence, it's critical that we're evaluating and uh, uncovering, minimizing, and allocating potential risk. We're assessing the risk and qualifying the risk of exposure to loss of value of investment. It's important to evaluate efforts to mitigate that risk. And there's various components uh, with respect to checking compliance with law and other requirements of the system to make sure that the investment and the managers comply with the, with the requirements the system may have. It's critical to understand the investment strategy because many of the strategies are complicated um, and complex. Uh, critical to establish a level of comfort with the manager. Uh, especially if you've done business with that manager before, or if it's a first time, a new relationship. And here, the last bullet point is critical to note. You must monitor uh, frequently and regularly the performance, compliance, and the trigger events. Next slide. As I mentioned earlier, there's business considerations and legal considerations. With respect to the business considerations when you're performing due diligence, it's important to interview the manager. You may do that by phone, in person, or nowadays virtual. But that doesn't replace the need to actually visit the manager at their place of business and conduct an on-site meeting to understand where they work and their surroundings. You'll be reviewing marketing materials. And on top of that, the critical uh, aspect will be to conduct your own independent research with respect to the manager and the considerations behind the strategy. And that may mean looking at various databases that track performance of the managers, reviewing the investment terms, the management team, the fundraising efforts, um, as well as results, of course. Um, important to note that the firm's stability, how long they've been around, what's the turnover, what's the management team, the management style, and have they changed their strategies over time. Um, here, another important aspect is background checks, personal background checks with respect to the principles of the manager, not just the organization itself, but the individuals who run the business. Um, Another important aspect is reference checks. What reputation do they have in the industry? 
how have other investors um, dealt with them and, and what their experiences have been. Um, and many look to written business due diligence questionnaires where they ask the managers questions and they uh, review their responses and to see if those responses are consistent with the independent research and diligence you've been conducting. Uh, next slide. There are also legal considerations that need to be addressed. Uh, as Ashley mentioned earlier, fiduciary duty to engage in prudent informed decision-making and negotiate the terms of, of the documentation. Uh, those responsibilities could be assigned to uh, the board, the CEO, CIO, outside counsel, the consultants may be involved as well in the legal considerations and doing due diligence oversight and monitoring. And then it comes down to reviewing the legal terms versus the business terms to make sure that the legal documentation uh, that you're reviewing adequately and fairly and accurately reflect the economic terms of the transactions. Uh, next slide, please. Now in considering delegation to staff uh, for investment decisions, or investment uh, work, it's helpful to take a quick look at what the CEO, CIO, and investment staff are currently doing. They identify investment opportunities and monitor existing investments. They partner with consultants to conduct due diligence. They negotiate business and legal terms. They make recommendations to the board. And if provided with delegated authority by the board, they may make certain investment decisions. Next slide, please. And here you will see a list of the individuals who provide support for SFIRS in uh, selection of investment opportunities. Those are investment consultants, asset class consultants, investment managers, outside investment council, and other investment related service providers. Next slide, please. Here on this slide, what we're trying to address are other considerations for investment negotiations with or without delegation. So many systems have boards that approve ahead of time their forms and templates with respect to the legal documentation. Those forms and templates set out preferred terms, preferred documents, and those are the documents you may be using for every single manager. There are pros and cons uh, with that approach. Um, uh, but at the same time, what it does set out is that the expectations are uniform, regardless of the manager, the, uh, the same forms are used and those forms comply with the system's requirements. Um, there's investment legal terms, and then there's business legal terms and business requirements that are reflected in the forms and templates. Um, additional considerations for negotiating legal documents would be to decide what are your deal breakers. If certain terms on the business or the legal side are not met, but you're still comfortable with the manager, still want to pursue the strategy, still believe and have a conviction in the investment itself, do those deal breakers mean that the deal is terminated? And, and that's what the second bullet point there refers to legal terms versus do the deal. If the legal terms do not reflect 100% what uh, the forms and templates reflect, do 
you still do the deal because of all these various other considerations with the investment manager. You're looking at the returns uh, and weighing the returns versus the fund's market power and fiduciary duties that you may have as the consumer in engaging with that manager. And of course, important to note the role of internal counsel to help ensure the system, the proper checks and balances are met when negotiating legal documents. So um, considering everything that's been presented and the, the comment that, um, well, some work was done on these topics previously, uh, as Commissioner Driscoll noted, certainly has not come to a circumstance where any decisions have been made. Uh, SERS is proposing some further education and discussion on this topic. And one of the ways to get additional points of reference and uh, frames of models or, or approaches to this topic that may be pertinent to your board's consideration of how, what to do next would be to seek input from other public pension plans on their experience with investment delegation and to put together a comprehensive analysis and report that we are gonna discuss the parameters of that we've been discussing with that your CIO, CEO, CIO would like to discuss with you um, as laid out on the following slides. Next slide. So the concept here would be to get information from a number of different California and national systems um, in the range of 20 to 25 systems who have assets under management of 10 billion or more and ask them about their asset allocation, portfolio construction and the, how they manage their investment portfolios, big picture. Uh, ask them questions about the expertise of the retirement systems internal staff and its role in due diligence because systems do vary uh, a bit in this um, category. Ask questions about the role that the investment consultant plays with respect to those plans. Ask whether they, they um, incorporate differences as between different types of asset types, asset amounts or levels and investment structure when they consider delegation or adopt delegation models. And then also ask about how they engage in reporting back to make sure that the board can continue to um, exercise its important responsibility of oversight and monitoring. Next slide, please. The plant, the uh, approach here would be to send out some sort of a, a survey that um, is within the parameters outlined here uh, it, this month. Uh, and your CEO, CIO will, will step in here after this presentation to discuss this further with you. Um, but the plan, if agreed to in concept, 
would be to report back to you by the end of Q2 of 2023 with some recommendations or options that your CEO CIO would present with the report. This could go back either to the investment committee for further discussion of once uh, preliminary results come back from this report or to the board at a regularly scheduled meeting, or you can set a strategic workshop to focus specifically on this topic as you wish. And then from there, develop a proposed plan of action after discussion of the report and full consideration of it. So that is the end of our prepared remarks. We're happy to take questions. And, and as I noted, I think your CEO, CIO may want to may want to either take questions or make a, a statement as well. Allison. Thank you, uh, Ashley. Um, I don't have a, a lot to add here. I really do want to make sure that we address any questions that, that come up. Um, and I want to reiterate that the approach here that, that we've taken with respect to the conversation is to provide some education uh, with respect to fiduciary duty and, and, and delegation and set the stage for an ongoing discussion. Um, clearly, we're not making decisions here today. Um, and we thought it was a good idea. I thought it was a good idea stepping into this role to, to start afresh um, and survey the landscape, understand what peers are, are doing based on their size, based on the depth of their investment staff provide that education to the board um, and, and make recommendations going forward. So this is uh, the first step of uh, several uh, to accomplish that objective. Great. Um, and also, as we've seen, noticed through the presentation, there are some items that um, have been in abeyance and haven't been addressed for a year or even longer. So um, it's timely and I think it, it goes to um, a comment I made earlier about the strength of the committee system at the board. And obviously, this falls into a number of the purviews of the number of committees that we have. So um, I, I, I think we appreciate, you know, being nudged here and, uh, and um, think the ball is primarily in our court to um, pick up the suggestions, recommendations, and guidance that you're giving and, and do our job in, in formalizing. And I know Commissioner Driscoll is very um, passionate about that responsibility. And I think we all should pick up some of that passion and, passion and move forward. And this was a good you know, a, awakening, if you will, or a challenge, if you will. So that's turn it over for any questions that any board members might have. Uh, yeah, I, I'd like to first just thank you for the presentation. I thought it was incredibly informative um, and helpful. Uh, in regarding future plans like uh, for additional training, um, I was looking at some of the later slides. One of the things that I've noticed just as I've gone to interact with folks from other uh, pension plans, as well as the the sheer amount of complexity that our plan has when I'm talking with my peers and other organizations, even similar side, we have a very complex plan with a lot of different stuff. And it'd be great to um, incorporate that into our, and 
uh, our, our comparative studies here, because I've seen on the final slide, we're looking at California national systems with similar size and, and then discussions on asset allocation. I'd like to also sort of create a, a, a category of, let's call them extra complex uh, pension plans that use utilize a lot of different uh, investment vehicles um, and, and how they do that. Because I, I think that's one, another distinguishing characteristic that SFRS has. And it, and it may play into what a prudent uh, trustee would have to do. But thank you very much. I appreciate this. Any other comments, questions? Joe, do you have anything? Yeah, I'll uh, skip over the uh, <clears throat> minor items on some of the PowerPoint slides. With the that I will make note, <clears throat> there's some implication that we select legal counsel. Other than an approval of a list of five attorneys about 15 years ago to do what I call farm worker, farm team work to assist our deputy city attorneys in the investment area. The board has never been involved in selecting our attorneys, nor have we ever reviewed the work of our attorneys. And that's sort of a minor issue based on how important this document is before us. However, some of us will remember that about a year and a half ago, someone said one of their goals would be to get our own separate legal counsel. I don't say that to tease uh, Cecilia or our city attorney, but it's just in, that shows you how important the issue of legal counsel is, how important the independence of a trust fund must be to execute its duties for its members. In terms of the major thrust of this delegation of investment authority, um, some of the phrases for context is one of our major duties is managing risk. It's always great and thrilling to talk about the money we make, the complexity that AJ was referring to a moment ago that our consultant, Alan Martin, was speaking about very complimentary an hour or so ago. Those great results were based on a decision many a couple decades ago to become more complicated, more complex, and then with the help of Jay Hewish and City Hall to hire great better, I should say better, we always had good people working here, but even better, more sophisticated and more investment professionals who could do more work, more due diligence and handle the more complicated matters and it's paid off in a better return. So there's a result, good results based on not luck, but on work. In terms of everything we do to improve the model, we are in the business of managing risk. The key to governing, managing risk is governance. The first big key to governance has to do with decision quality. You've probably heard me say this before, but I keep bringing that up, not for pro propaganda reasons, but to reinforce, reinforce. To do it, to accomplish it, takes years and efforts. And the last, let's talk about the governance issue alone. The last year and a half, the governance committee has been not functioning. That's simple. I'm back on the committee again because I've been reappointed to the committee, but this just shows you the work. In terms of what the outline here towards the end is, is where should the results of this survey be discussed? I should tell you right now, don't bring it back to the governance committee. It merits a strategic workshop because it's a couple hours decision to make such a huge fundamental change in how we will make decisions. Uh, so that's a feedback on how to handle the survey. The survey itself, I would say, I would 
suggest or ask you to let me look at the survey because I've done other surveying. If you ask the wrong questions, don't be surprised that you get a result that is not very useful. Much like they're right here earlier, the Q&A are the questions that our staff would send in the due diligence matter to any conceivable investment opportunity or general partnership. You know how important those questions are. We should, it is equally important if we're going to survey our peers, how they operate to maybe what we can copy, what we can't copy, don't need to copy. And there are a huge difference between public and private investing. And I know how some of the funds operate and it sounds like you're of the size you're recommending. They would actually in one sense be uh, peers in terms of size and are used to dealing with complicated decision-making because it's not actually the size of the dollars. It's the complexity that comes from the number of the different asset classes and sub asset classes you pursue. So that's a long winded comment on this great PowerPoint report. I'm glad it's here. Uh, it was the idea of the governance committee to do this over a year and a half ago. It just did not get done for a couple of reasons. But uh, so I'm not sure what kind of feedback the CEO CIO is looking for to direct our governance consultant, Ms. Dunning, to proceed. Thanks, Joe, for okay. your business. Thank you. Any further comments or questions? If I may, through the chair, just in response, um, the recommendation had not been that this go back to governance. It's that you either do a strategic workshop or it comes back to the board or goes to the investment committee. So I think that's very wise to give the full board either through the through any of those three frameworks, the opportunity to discuss what comes back. And most certainly we will receive input from um, the, the input warranted to make sure that's the best survey we can come up with, uh, particularly with Yulia having a whole lot of um, exposure to very sophisticated plans. Um, that is a really important consideration to incorporate within our survey and to make sure we're addressing when when identifying who peers may and may not be sort of what makes it what makes a peer in some, one area may make them less of a peer in another uh, so certainly hear both of those comments and appreciate them and yes this is all about managing risk it may have been your decision to only suggest those three options for returning the matter. But this is a governance matter. It would have been equally important to go to the governance committee, but I'm dismissing that. Okay. Understood, understood, and and understood. It is a governance matter, but at this point it can come back to the full group in some form. Okay. Um, I, I assume, well, I, I, I will talk, update, um, President Safai on this and the um, general feeling and the importance of this issue that we refocus. Uh, obviously, our CIO, our CEO, CIO is going to be push us and drive us. And when and absolutely, when her institutional, her intellectual knowledge on the subject, having been involved in the industry for years. And know, having a peer group that they can, she can tap for additional information. We know some of those peers, and they're, they're, they'd be great guidance. 
and we appreciate Nasserman's guidance, help, and support on this. Do there are any further questions on uh, the team on this subject? Joe, I, I think. What is the plan for the excuse me? Yeah, what is the plan for the development of this survey to I, this large group of conceivable peers? I think that should come from um, our CEO to answer that. I don't know whether she wants to do it today or whatever. But. Can can you hear me, Commissioner Helpon? Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, yes, in preparation um, for this meeting, I had been working with Nassiman to develop a set of criteria and questions that would ultimately go to a, a peer group um, with the criteria that, that they have outlined in this presentation to make sure that we get a robust peer group of various complexities, size, et cetera. Um, so those questions would be developed as, as Ashley outlined the plan was to send that out sometime this month so we could get the process rolling. To the extent um, that there, there's a preference um, from some sort to review that, we can certainly make that, that happen. Um, I I'm certainly have been involved in the process to make sure, again, it's a robust survey. Uh, but also a survey that, that will be one that we will get responses to uh, that manages the robustness without being overly lengthy, such that the response rate would be uh, inadequate. Smart. <laughs> uh, save your voice, all right? Don't. But um, yeah, I think um, to, to bolt on to what was just said, it also takes a kumbaya of the of the board to uh, come together and commit to make, making this process work. Any other further comments? Let me say it more directly then. I was trying to suggest or offer my participation in the development of the survey, at least seeing it before it goes out. If that's being denied, that's the way it is. Or maybe I was not clear. And while you're thinking about an answer to that point, no offense to all the attorneys in the room. However, Decision quality. There are people who are participate in that skill who are not attorneys. I know staff has been wise to also talk to people like that. That's a a certain angle to this whole thing, not simply trying to comply with fiduciary laws that I would hope would be captured in the survey as we're trying to find out if our peers are doing anything better or how they do it better than we might be doing. And the one of the footnotes I just want to throw in here is about uh, over a year and a half ago, when former CIO, Mr. Coker, presented to us the Canadian report, I think it was called. Very yeah. well job done based on the Canadian paper that I know some of us, maybe you've all read it by now. But it goes to shoot about governance, setup, independence, decision making. It's all related to this thing. But I'll go back to my original point about seeing that survey that whoever is designing it, uh, obviously I have strong views about it. And not because I just want to read it, but I spent a lot of work time on how to ask the right question. If you have the ability to make sure we have a very qualified person answering the question, that's great, as opposed to just being delegated to some junior person to answer the question and sending it back to her. Thank you. Um, I don't think there was a decision or, or anything implied that you weren't in the loop on, on anything. So, and also I'll take a comment you made to sort of uh, digress on the importance of 
certain committees about the investment committee was exactly what it was formed for and what its charge was and the term of reference it is, was the education of the board. And one of them is the education of the board and your, relying, your reference to the Canadian model just is a perfect example of what, how the investment committee should go forward and work in one of its uh, directions. So I would thank you for <laughs> adding that definition. But I mean, obviously I'll, I'll say this for, I know that in the, everybody, everybody, every board member here has a responsibility on this. And that was driven home today by the fiduciary responsibilities of the board member. So um, you're, you're definitely an important person in this as are all of us. So anyhow, that's enough. Okay, any other comments? No, thank you very much. We will uh, work with your CEO, CIO uh, on developing the survey. She will communicate with those of you as appropriate. Uh, I'll leave that to her and, and we'll go from there and we'll come back. We'll work with the board president as well on re-agendizing of this at the appropriate time and the appropriate forum. Um, I would certainly appreciate input from trustees in compliance with open meeting laws and in compliance with governance, you know, how, how your president and, and your CEO uh, wish to proceed. But uh, we appreciate the comments about the importance of fiduciary governance and uh, taking all of this very seriously. We think it is uh, a really good time of year to uh, launch into really best practices for 2023, if you will, in all these areas. So thank you for your time. And thank you. Uh, we'll be back. Thank you. Okay, um, Madam Secretary, you um, call for comment? Certainly, uh, we do not have any in-person public comment at this time. A reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Can you call item 14, please? No, no, 13, sorry. 13. Item number 13, discussion item, Chief Executive Officer's Report. Allison, if you'd like, I can handle the highlights for you. Uh, thank you, Allison wanted to report on um, two significant retirements of senior managers within the department at the end of the year. Um, you may or may not be aware that Grace Tam, our uh, human resources director will be retiring at the end of the month. Actually her last day in the office is tomorrow. And uh, we have appointed an interim finance, I'm sorry, human resources um, manager to pick up her role. And we also are um, saying goodbye to Craig Lee, who is our IT director and you all know him. This is his last board meeting with you. Um, we are in the middle of a recruitment for his replacement and we're hoping to have interviews early next year. Um, we wish all of both of them best of luck. They're not disappearing completely. They're still available to us if, if we need help. 
but um, we wish them the best of luck in their new endeavors. They've worked hard. They've made significant contributions to the retirement system over the years, and both of them will be missed quite a bit. Uh, the other matter that we wanted to bring to your attention is that the special needs ordinance that was before the Board of Supervisors was finally approved on Tuesday, and the retirement services staff will be preparing to um, implement. Mostly it will be it changes of procedures and forms. Those are the highlights. Um, we want to wish you all and your families a happy holiday and a happy new year. And we look forward to seeing you all in the new year. Happy to take any questions if anybody has anything. Allison, was there anything else you wanted me to add before we do that? You covered the key topics. Thank you. Um, I, on, I'll take the position of, as the vice president in the um, meeting that we, on the behalf of the board, could you please extend our, our congratulations on their on Grace's Craig's retirement or moving on? I'm not sure, and uh, tell them that we really appreciate their years of service and their professionalism. And Craig's probably got about. 40 gray hairs more every day being in COVID and a bunch of um, uh, commissioners that are trying to get their act together and all that. So we've, we've really appreciated their work and please extend that to you. Do that. Thank you. Any questions, comments? Okay, thank you. Allison, if you start going better, and um, we'll call the uh, for the good of the order that you do. We have a public comment first. Yeah, okay, let's go back. We have no in-person public at the moment, and a reminder to callers to press star three. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there's no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Item number 14, discussion item, retirement board member, good of the order. I can only say um, to continue off from my point of view, to continue on from what I said, was talking about before on the item with um, our fiduciary training. The uh, agenda, so to speak, as far as I see of what we have to do, we collectively in the board, have to do to ensure that we are operating as well as our investments are is being set and um, look forward to you know carrying it out and in light and enlarging our the subject matters as we go into the other items that we have responsibilities for as a board member. It's just a comment. Any other comments, Commissioner? If not, I say I hope staff has a chance to relax over the holidays. So there's always more work coming in than time available. But hope you all have a chance to enjoy the holidays like you just wished for us. Thank you. And a big thank you from the board to the staff. Okay, we will adjourn. To a public comment to the good of the order. Right. <laughs> public comment to the good of the order.
Madam Secretary. We have no in-person public comment. Moderator, are there any callers? Madam Secretary, we don't have any callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Happy holidays, everyone. I like the idea of eating while we're working. Yeah, that's true. Are you saying I was jubilant? <laughs> okay. Yeah. 